Hey guys, and welcome to Hunting Land, presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. If you'd like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. This week's show is brought to you by MB Ranch King. MB Ranch King hunting blinds and feeders are built to last right here in the USA. With durability and convenience in mind, MB Ranch King's maintenance-free hunting blinds are constructed with high-grade steel and come in a variety of sizes to meet any hunter's needs. They also offer high-quality, easy-to-use corn and protein feeders that can be filled with both feet on the ground. Call Kevin today for more information or a quote at 205-807-2937. MB Ranch King, built in the pursuit of perfection. And also brought to you by Southern Seed and Feed. Do you want to provide better nutrients to your deer? If so, try Southern Buck Food Plot Blends. Your deer will love it. At Southern Seed and Feed, they specialize in making textured feed for horses, cattle, sheep, goats, hogs, chickens, small animals, and wildlife. Their products are proven irresistible, scientifically formulated to promote excellent herd health and hunter satisfaction. They supply products to various distributors throughout the South. So visit their website at southernseedfeed.com or call 662 726-2638 726-2638 to find the dealer nearest you. I'm your host, Joe Baia, here today with my co-host, Butch Theory. And, uh, you know, Butch, my wife and I have this little running calendar that we're keeping up with of, of things that we can do on our property during hunting season, outside of hunting season, different things we can, you know, go pick dewberries with the kids or look for mushrooms uh, when it's outside of the season and when we're going to plant and, and kind of having a range of dates that we can do that. And one of the things that, that I ran across in my calendar was the fact that the off season for deer hunting and for other types of hunting, for me, is a great time to run up and do a soil test uh, because it's just allows me to go all, all over the property, not worry about pressure. And it's really just another excuse for us to go up to the camp, you know, always and, looking uh, for one of those <laughs> and get everybody yeah, definitely always looking for one of those. Yeah. But you know, I've got some questions about that. I'm wondering if I'm doing it the right way. I'm wondering if I'm doing it the right time of the year. I'm, I'm wondering really how often I need to do it. And the biggest thing I tend to struggle with is now that I've got this analysis, like what do I do with this information? Right. Yeah, I agree. Uh, we're not farmers, you know, we're halfway decent podcast hosts. Right. So we definitely need some guidance there. And and you talk about when you start throwing in geographic regions and, you know, soil, sandy soil versus, you know, different types of soils. And man, it's crazy on our place. I mean, yeah, man. And whenever you throw in, you know, geographic regions and things like that, I mean, on our place, it's nuts. I mean, you can go 500 yards and the soil can be totally different just depending on where you are on the property. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, just y'all got a lot more acreage than I do. And I think I've got 13 different soil types on, <laughs> wow. you know, on my 200 acres and, you know, looking at that going, all right, well, where's the best place for a food plot and right. which soils are going to be conducive to what and yeah. things you got to know whenever you, or before you start planting uh, to right. be able to, to get the full pull out of your, your planting efforts. Yeah, absolutely, man. To, to get into today's show, we're going to be talking with Nick Ward at Ward Laboratories, and he's really going to answer all these questions. It's a great show. All right, but before we get there, let's go check in for another interest rate update. This week, we're talking with Brandon Simpson over at First South Farm Credit. Well, Brandon, welcome back to Huntland, man. I think uh, there's going to be a lot to talk about today in the world of interest rates. Last few times we've had you on, uh, things have been kind of flat. Uh, last time we talked to you, you, you kind of got behind your crystal ball and Sounds like things may have got here a little quicker than you thought. What's going on with interest rates? Yeah, uh, we talked first of the first of the year, 
And pretty much what I was thinking would take a year to unfold has pretty much unfolded in six months uh, with rates as far as increasing. Yeah, you know, right out of the gate, what are we looking at? You know, if we're talking, say, you know, common 15 or 20 year loans, uh, what's the range right now? As a general rule of thumb, you know, at the end of the last year, January, December, January, you know, most land rates are in the fours. And uh, we kind of projected them to kind of start increasing and get into the sixes as, you know, we went out through 2022. However, uh, like I said earlier, here we are sitting middle of the year and they've already increased. And most land rates today are in that six to seven and a half percent range. Of course, long term money is, is certainly higher than short term money. And we're starting to see just some transition in how people think about structuring loans uh, in this type of rate environment. I'm glad you mentioned that. What's that transition? What's that new way of thinking when we get into these environments where, you know, and that's, that's the other thing, everybody's kind of shocked by interest rate increases. And I'm not really sure why, I guess it's just the speed of it. But in reality, these are still historically pretty dang low interest rates. I mean, if you really look at things on a, uh, a much larger scale, but when we go into these periods where interest rates are rising, how does the loan product change that most people desire? We seem to uh, see a lot of people trend back towards doing five and seven year type balloon notes. Uh, typically in a lower rate environment, a lot of people want to go ahead and lock in that rate for a longer period of time and take advantage of the long term lower rates. But uh, as rates start increasing, you know, into those sixes and 7% range, which the last time, you know, it did this would have been shortly after 08, whenever we were lending money in these types of rates. We noticed a lot of people doing these five and seven, possibly even a 10 year type balloon note. And the thought process behind most of that for most people is, uh, you know, over the next five to seven years, something that's bound to change as far as the economy is concerned and what's going on and rates are bound to come back down. And when rates do come back down, we can do a note modification and modify the note for them to take advantage of the rates as they come down. That's the thought process for most people that, that I'm talking with uh, currently. We're talking about the speed at which these rate changes have happened. Is there any sign, do you guys see any sign of this slowing down? I don't. Matter of fact, some of the economists that we get information from are actually talking that, you know, it's going to continue to get worse. Here it is, you know, the 15th of June. We're actually probably 15 minutes out from the Fed releasing another potential increase of 75 basis points, which is 0.75 percent, uh, which is kind of unexpected. That, that, that'll be the largest single increase that the Feds have done in 28 years, dating back to 1994, as far as increasing the rate at one time. So there's even talk about them increasing rates, you know, all the way up to about another 2% over this fall and into the first half of next year. So I don't foresee it leveling out until you start seeing things in grocery stores and the, and the gas tanks leveling out personally. So Brandon, if I've got, you know, my piece of land and it's either it's got some equity in it or I don't have a mortgage at all and I want to do some improvements and let's say either I got some timber, but I don't like what prices are doing on timber. I don't want to cut it right now. Or I just am interested in taking a, a line of credit or similar product out, you know, to build a camp or a barn or a lake, whatever, you know, improvement I'm shooting for there. How does that work in comparison and, and what are rates doing for those? Yeah, we've seen a good amount of people actually 
come back to us to finance a barn or finance a camp or finance other improvements such as a pond on a piece of property after we finance the initial purchase or even, you know, cash buyers who's paid cash for property and, you know, they've been holding on to it for a while and they've enjoyed it for a year or two and now they're wanting to spend more time out there. So uh, we certainly can look at financing improvements such as those for for buyers. Um, you know, let's just say you, you got a $100,000 property and you're wanting to build a $50,000 barn, you know, assuming the barn is worth what you're paying for it. You know, you'd have $150,000 worth of uh, value there in the, in the land plus the improvements. And we can lend up to, to 80% of that. So uh, in some cases, you know, we lend up to 85% of that. So what you're looking at there is a situation where potentially uh, we could finance 100% of the improvement value as long as our overall global collateral position was 85% or, or less. So we're seeing a lot of people do that. That's right. When you get into a uh, a land improvement loan like that, are the rates still corresponding back to, to where we started with those new purchases? Yes. Uh, the terms that are offered uh, for the improvements are very, very similar to the terms that are offered for raw land purchases because none of these loans are sold. You know, all the loans that we do are kept here in-house and you know, we can structure a loan however, you know, it needs to be structured to best suit the financial goals of the borrower of what they're trying to accomplish. And, and Brandon, how is that, uh, that LTV assessed? So like, you know, if I've got a $100,000 property and I go build a $200,000 camp on it, I may or may not get that money back depending on <laughs> the area I'm putting it in. If I'm putting myself a, a big fancy lodge out in the middle of 40 acres, then uh, may, may not get my money back on that. So is that part of the appraisal process? I mean, how would somebody go about figuring out if this is feasible before they get too far down the road of planning and starting to actually spend some money working towards that goal? Yeah, the initial conversations that, that I have with, with landowners when it comes to improvements such as this, I assume out the gate that, that the improvement is going to be valued at what it costs them. However, that necessarily is, is not always the fact because the, it's subject to the property being appraised. So, you know, we're going to have that property be appraised and we have to run off the appraised value. But for general conversation purposes, when I'm talking with a buyer, I assume that they're going to get dollar for dollar for the improvement that they're creating and putting on that property. One challenging thing that we've seen with these increased and in inflation cost, uh, in, in increased cost of goods is in some situations you're seeing where just because something costs X dollars doesn't necessarily mean it's adding the same exact dollar of value to what you're doing. So there has been some things we've seen recently with that due to inflation. But out the gate, you know, I'm going to assume that if you're building a $100,000 pole barn with living quarters or, or projects such as that, that it's going to create that $100,000 worth of value dollar for dollar. But yes, these properties are appraised. Uh, these improvements are appraised by our appraisers and we're going to be subject to what our appraisal says. Yeah, Brandon, that was great the way you broke that down. I think that'll really uh, help our listeners if they have any improvements they need to make on their land. And we are definitely in interesting times. I definitely remember talking to you back in, I believe it was January, like you were saying. And, you know, we had talked about the fact that it was going to be ramped up four times by the end of 2022. So to think that it's already here, that's it's a little depressing. But man, I, um, you know, over there at First South, you guys have the patronage. How does that work in times like this, as far as keeping that patronage for the people that invest with you guys? 
you know, that's the wonderful thing about the farm credit system in First South are these patronage checks. Um, the good news is, is, you know, First South is certainly prepared for the times that we have coming ahead. And as we come over the coming years of what we're going to be challenging and facing, uh, I don't foresee significant changes with our patronage distributions uh, based on the profits of First South. You know, history, we have continued to pay patronage for 27 consecutive years. Last year, we paid back $26 million. And it was about 22.65% of the interest that we earned on our loans. So, you know, that does, like, you hear a lot of people talk about, you know, it's a percent, a percent and a quarter reduction in your stated interest rates, which is true. So that's the good news. Uh, you know, even though rates have transitioned into the sixes and low sevens, in reality, the net effect that these borrowers are having to pay is, you know, in the fives and the low sixes. So that's the good news about the farm credit system in First South and what I foresee happening. Even in these higher rates, they're still the, the, the net effect is still less than what, what we're talking here. Understood. And I would assume that's obviously a very, very uh, positive thing and a pro for dealing with uh, organizations such as First South. You guys have a stable organization there. So if folks want to get up with a lending professional closest to them, what's the best way to uh, get in contact with you guys? Yeah, the best way would probably be just go to our website at firstsouthland.com. Uh, we have uh, over right at 50 offices throughout Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. So we've got multiple offices in these three states to cover different areas. And uh, you can always, again, go to firstsouthland.com to look at your specific area, or you could always give us a call here locally in Baymanette at 251-580-8678. Brandon, thanks as always for joining us, man. We appreciate your insight on this, and uh, we'll be looking forward to the next update. Thank you, sir. Guys, let's take a quick break and hear from this week's sponsors. The Hunter's Mate Lowdown Trail Cam Reviewer. Finally, a trail cam viewer that actually works. Lowdown's high-speed trail cam viewer has flipping fast technology that allows you to view images three times faster on a screen that is 60% bigger than typical 7-inch viewers. Lowdown is a dedicated viewer slash photo manager made for one thing and one thing only. Fast, uncomplicated viewing of your trail cam images and videos. Lowdown makes viewing large numbers of images fast and easy. It allows you to easily delete individuals or groups of selected images. Find out more at lowdownviewer.com. And also brought to you by Bucks Island Marine. At bucksisland.com, you can check out the full list of inventory from new and used bass, pontoon, and bow rider style boats, new and used motors, as well as kayaks. They love trade-ins, which provides a steady stream of used boats, and they can rig your boat at their 18-bay service department, or ship your new motor anywhere in the United States. They provide boat service on all kinds of boats, even if they weren't purchased from Bucks. They have factory-trained and certified technicians, so visit them at 4500 Highway 77 in Southside, Alabama, or give them a call at 256-442-2588. You know, as hunters, we can spend a lot of money planning food plots, and it makes no sense to spend all that time and energy and cash on seeds and, you know, looking at that going, all right, well, where's the best place for a food plot and what, which soils are going to be conducive to what? And to do that this week, we're talking with Nick Ward of Ward Laboratories. Nick, welcome to Hunting Land. First off, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and about Ward Labs. Well, absolutely. And, and thank you for having me on today. So a little bit about, I'll start with Ward Laboratories to start. Uh, we're a full service agricultural testing laboratory. So anything that is involved in ag or, or kind of small business or, or homeowner 
uh, we try to do some sort of analytical work to help people. So for farming, it's soil samples for fertilizer application, maybe for a, a homeowner or a small landowner, uh, water tests on their household well to make sure they've got good quality water. Or if it's uh, animals, you know, good feed, feed value for the, the stuff that's going to that livestock. So any, anywhere in that, in that realm, we try to provide some sort of analytical test to provide them some data on making decisions and know how well things are doing. That's key, right? If you're going to make decisions, you want to have you want to have data. You want to have good data so that you can pivot if you're not making the right management decisions. And uh, sounds like we should have had you on a couple of weeks ago. We just did a show on on how to drill a well. Uh, so you yeah, guys yeah. definitely could did. be involved in that. But yeah, tell us a little about a little bit about you, how you got into this. Yeah, originally from uh, Wamigo, Kansas, which is northeast Kansas. Grew up, had uh, grandparents that farmed, had an uncle that farmed. So I was always kind of more of a rural or country country guy growing up, got to college and, you know, always trying to find out what you're going to do in life, uh, stumbled upon agronomy. And that's, you know, working with crops and, and producing grain and what have you. So got involved in that, liked what it was, you know, it's, it's a way to be connected to farming without actually being a farmer, uh, which I liked and it to fill that uh, passion that I wanted to have. Went through undergraduate, graduate degrees, Came out to, to War Laboratories as a family business, so working with my grandpa out here. But uh, so yeah, that's that's kind of the journey, I guess, how I got here. And uh, right now, you know, married, have four kids, and just all those kids' activities. You know, it's uh, keeps me very busy. Sounds like a full time job in itself. Absolutely, it most definitely is. Yeah. Well, Nick, you, you touched on it a little bit there. Today, we're talking about, you know, do you need a soil analysis? We're geared towards landowners and hunters in particular. Um, you mentioned a few there as far as farmers and figuring out how much fertilizer you need on those crops. And uh, you mentioned a well, but what are some of the other common reasons that a landowner would need a soil analysis? So mainly when, when people are wanting to get a soil test, they're, they're wanting to either uh, grow something better. So either their lawn, a food plot, you know, crops, anything they want, they just want it to be better. So they'll, they'll take a soil test, figure out maybe what nutrients are lacking. Another reason why they might want to take the test is they see differences out there. We have a, you know, the way our land lays, we know that the slope always is kind of growing different in this one area versus uh, maybe a more flat area. Is there something with the soil nutrients that's different causing that growth to be different? Or is it just that slope and not enough water but, you know, those are reasons why someone would want to get soil tests, either to diagnose some sort of problem that might be out there or just improve the quality of what is growing and do better. There's no doubt about it. I mean, for guys planting food plots, they're oftentimes... It's a big wanting, deal. They're wanting to plant something that's going to be attractive for wildlife for the hunting season so that they can hunt over those food sources and around those food sources and and make sure they're as palatable as they can be and, and have as much draw as they can have. And then you know, for the off season, it's more about trying to produce good quality forage for wildlife so that those, that wildlife is healthy. And, for, you know, for guys that are into antlers or growing bigger antlers or body weights or growing, growing heavier, um, all those reasons. But you mentioned that a lot of times it's a problem that they're seeing that leads them to a soil test or soil analysis as they're going, I don't like something I see out there. Or I don't understand something I see out there. What are some of those problems? I mean, are we talking about like just low quality forage or, or not high enough yields or, or coloration? Or what are some of the things that people maybe need to be looking for 
let's just talk food plots and specifics Yeah. that, Hey, a soil analysis would really tell you if it's this or that, what are you thinking there? That's, that is a great point. And usually it's, it's kind of a color and then just lack of vigor or lack of growth biomass altogether. They just, they see that color. They know it should be a, a deeper green, more rich looking. And, and that leads them to start, start that process of, uh, of saying, Hey, what am I, what am I lacking here? No, the deeper the green, the forage or the, the more robust it looks, uh, you'll probably generally have better protein content in the, in the forage. Uh, that's, that's huge for putting on muscle on animals. Uh, so you've got to have a good protein content. It also makes them feed more attractive to the animals as well. Uh, but usually when they, they you know, to, to identify that problem, it's a, it's a poor coloration in the crop. It's kind of a lack of vigor and just a, a overall lack of, of biomass size. Gotcha. So if we see these problems out there, I want to know, what is the proper sampling technique? And when I say technique, I don't just mean using a soil probe. And, you know, I mean, I think there's tons of videos out there on how to use a soil probe and how to get a good soil sample. We can talk about that a little bit, but also how often should we be soil testing? And, and, you know, is this something that we need to be doing before every, every planting once a year, once every couple of years, what do you think on those? Yeah. And the sampling thing is definitely one that, that people need to pay attention to. We talk about getting composite samples. So what, what do we mean by that? Well, I've got uh, an area on my property where I'm growing uh, uh, this crop. Uh, it's, a, it's an area that might be maybe one or two acres in size. Uh, just taking one little shovel full or spade full of soil or one probe in, in the corner isn't going to be representative of that whole, whole area. So what we want to do is take multiple samples from within the area we're trying to address. Uh, we'd like to take at least eight samples kind of on a low side maybe a larger area, upwards of 10 acres, we might want to get upwards of 16 samples. And we mix those together in a clean plastic bucket. And from that, we, we collect about two to three cups worth of soil or, or like a quart size Ziploc bag worth of soil. And that's what we send in for that test. So yeah, the, the main thing is, is getting that representation of that area. And that's why we take those multiple cores. And then as far as each core, we want to be consistent on how deep you're going. Uh, so the, the nutrients uh, within a soil profile, you know, everything grows up, dies on top, decomposes, comes back into the soil. So the richness or the, the richer nutrient content is always at the surface. So if you take really shallow samples, you know, you should have high nutrient content. If you take a deep, deep sample, you know, you're diluting that nutrient. So based on the way Ward Laboratories looks at the results, we'd like to growers to have either a zero to six or a zero to eight inch soil sample. So we can really put some meaning behind those numbers. We can say, yes, this phosphorus test is low. You will want to add some sort of phosphorus fertilizer to, to make some more healthy growth on, on that crop. So if that, uh, that should be a good direction and, and that consistency on that depth throughout taking the samples is, is key. Makes sense. Going back through what you said, I mean, you're looking for, you know, six to eight inches of depth on your cores, you're looking at anywhere from eight to 16 different cores, depending on the size of the area that, that you're wanting to test. I would think most of our listeners that are planting food plots, average food plots going to be probably around an acre. And you don't see a whole lot that are much bigger than 10 acres. And you definitely see a lot more skewed towards the smaller side. So you're probably going to be skewed more down towards the eight samples in that area. I would imagine for your hunters, what about timing? You know, I'll just put, just put my summer plots in the ground again. Well, I, you know, down here in, in the Southeast, I'm going to be putting my fall plots in, in September. 
is it important that I take that soil sample around the same time of the year that I'm going to do the planting or does it really matter that much? Should things, if I take a sample, say in, you know, in the spring, is it going to change that much into the, the fall planting? It's really kind of up to the grower, like what, what's going to work best. If, uh, if you know how, or when are you going to address the problems that you might find? If you take a sample in the spring and you know, you're going to be planting right away, maybe you use that data to come back in on the fall planting. Okay. I saw in the spring, I was lacking a little bit the fall growth, I'm going to put on a little extra fertilizer here or there. uh, So I get good fall growth. So it doesn't really matter, but be consistent from, if you're going to sample it, say every two years, always try to go with that same period. So if I'm going to sample in the spring to help make decisions, either top dress a summer crop or to make fertilizer plans for a fall crop, but I'm always going to go in the spring. And why I say, you know, it's probably best to address fertility in the fall is if you think about cooler soils, you know, everything that when stuff is cold or cool, the, the functionality just slows down a little bit. So sometimes with those winter crops, you need to have a little bit extra fertility there. Just, you know, the soil's not quite as active. The roots don't grow as fast. So having good fertility in the fall is probably more key than say summer fertility. So I'd say sample spring or fall, but that make, make sure those plants to fertilize definitely revolve around the fall planting. All right, guys, let's take a quick break. Don't forget about our sponsors and make sure you support them when you're out in the marketplace. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks are proud to be your metal roofing headquarters for over 40 years. Save time and money by buying from the most reliable manufacturer on the Gulf Coast. If you buy it today, you pick it up today. They offer 20 Sherwin-Williams colors to choose from and a 40-year warranty. Baker Metal and Dixie Supply, two names, same great service. With the addition of their new store in Cantonment, Florida, they now have eight locations to serve you. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks, your metal roofing headquarters. Well, Nick, whenever Joe and I were planning this show, we got on your website and we were looking around at some uh, soil tests and analysis, the sheets and the printouts and things like that, different things that landowners could see. There's a lot there. I mean, it's a lot to unpack. Is everything on that soil test important for landowners to understand? Or is there certain things that you should key on in particular? Yeah. Now, being that, you know, you guys are in the Southeast, but in, in the South or, or in more aged soils that have more rainfall, pH is one of those big things we always want to focus on, making sure our pH is in a range where we get good growth. You know, and that, that's pretty standard in any, any package that uh, Ward Laboratories has soil pH. So that's one of the key foundations to start with. You know, sometimes micronutrients seem like it's uh, not really important for maybe a food plot grower, but if guys are focused on making sure they get good mineral nutrition to, to animals that they're looking to harvest, you know, those are still important. So really the more comprehensive tests uh, are still probably very good value to, to a, just a landowner looking to put out some food plots, even though that seemed like it might be excessive, it still could shed some light on some things. So, well, and speaking of those comprehensive tests, like, you know, going back some, I didn't ask you, but how frequently you mentioned maybe two years. I mean, do you feel like this is something that needs to be done every year? And for, and for a food plotter, you know, I mean, obviously a, a farmer is probably going to have a little different goals because he's trying to make money off, off of his yields as opposed to a food plotter is just trying to feed deer. Is this an every year thing, every, every couple of years thing? Yeah, it's more likely a couple of year thing, especially with being food plots. You know, uh, you're not removing all that biomass every year. If, if for some reason they were haying that and taking that off, then I'd say let's come back kind of more of an every year basis and sample again. But if you've got food plots that you just kind of grow, uh, maybe mow or, or 
or till under the soil and come back and plant right again without taking that away, then you can probably go maybe two or three years before uh, between samplings. So that, that's kind of some guidance on, on how often is really based on what you're going to do with the material you're growing. So talking about those tests, bringing you back to the, you, you mentioned a comprehensive test. Is there different levels? You know, I'd say if there's a basic level that tests just the pH and those micro, or is there, a, like you said, is there several ranges of different tests? Yeah. Uh, yeah. We do have more of a base test. It's just focused on pH and NPK, you know, the, the big things you see on every fertilizer bag versus like our complete test would have, you know, the pH, NPK, but then also goes through secondary and micronutrients, you know, zinc, iron, manganese, copper, boron. So you can make sure that you've got a really good mineral rich forage out there, or, or at least you've got a soil that can supply all those nutrients to that crop. So yeah, there's, there's just different, different levels of tests ranging from very basic just or, or up to our complete test. One of the things I've struggled with in the past when I've been, I've had a soil test done and, and luckily it sounds like I'm doing a pretty good job of getting my sampling done correctly. But once I get that soil test back, actually interpreting what amendments to apply, what actions to take is where I, then I'm, there's kind of this, this next disconnect. So how should we interpret these soil test results? Like based on those findings, whether it be a pH issue, an NPK issue, a micronutrient issue, is there an easy way or, or some kind of a resource guide for people who are not agronomists to look at their soil test and analysis and understand what amendments are really needed to correct these deficiencies? Yeah, that's a great question. And we do have some guides uh, or resources on our website, or if someone were to email us or call, we can simply email that to you. But also what comes along with every soil test that you send to us, if, if you ask for it, uh, we provide uh, recommendations at no extra cost. So uh, if when you're submitting a soil sample, you say, trying to grow a food plot, ideally, I would like to say, get four tons of biomass production. And you put that in, we'll put that in there. We will give you recommendations on the, on the sample analysis report. We'd give you pounds of nutrients that you need on a per acre basis. So we don't tell you what fertilizer products to buy necessarily, but just the nutrients you need. So you might submit a sample, get back that says, I need 20 pounds of phosphorus, 40 pounds of potassium, and maybe five pounds of sulfur. Well, it'd be up to you to go to uh, maybe the local co-op or some other ag retail location say, hey, I got a soil test back. I roughly need this many nutrients. Can you blend me up some fertilizer? You have some fertilizer that you can sell me. Now I'm going to go scatter that out on the ground. And it's not necessarily, a, you know, you think about it as a fertilizer recommendation, but it's really about nutrients. So you see, you need, the, need these nutrients. We'll say, well, I got a neighbor that's doing some composting. I'm going to go get a, maybe he has a compost report. Well, then I know I can, I need roughly, you know, say 400 pounds of this compost per acre to get about 20 pounds of phosphorus out there. And then you can do it that way. So it's, it's not necessarily the recommendations that come back aren't necessarily for fertilizer, but nutrients. So where you find the nutrients, it can be a fertilizer product. It can be a compost. It can be some other soil amendment that you can find. Uh, but yeah, it, it's, it's pretty simple to, to follow as far as, Hey, I need 20 pounds of this. I got to go find it somewhere. And you can go from there. And, and of course, as people have questions, you know, we're, we're pretty receptive to taking phone calls and trying to talk somebody through it or you send off an email. We can shoot you an email back trying to lay things out for people. So very helpful in that, in that aspect. 
So Nick, I, I'm hearing what you're saying about, you know, MPK and, and pH. And I think most food plotters, most guys that have done, you know, some food plotting have, they know they need to pay attention to these things, but I want to go back to what you're saying about the micronutrients. So Nick, what are some of the common things you see in food plots that people are deficient in, in terms of micronutrients? And then what are people doing subsequently once they realize they've got this issue, what are they doing to key in on it? that they've got this problem in the first place. Uh, uh, of course, a soil analysis would help, but what are they doing to amend it um, once they realize they've got the problem? Yeah, absolutely, Joe, that's a great point. So once again, this goes back to, you know, that general observation of the landowner. If, if they're putting out, say, uh, a mineral supplement, like a, just a, a lick block or something, and they're noticing that the animals seem to be hitting that very hard and uh, it's, it doesn't last very long, that could be an indication that, hey, that forage that uh, these animals are, are working on it's going to be deficient in, in some micronutrients because animals have a very good, you know, they, they sense that need of that micronutrient fertility or, or micronutrient nutrition. So if they're not getting it from that forage that they're eating, they're going to try to go find it somewhere else. And if, uh, so if we're seeing a lot of use of uh, supplemental minerals, that's going to lead us into that soil test. Say, Hey, when I do get my soil test, I'm going to really look at that uh, copper or look at that manganese content of, the, of that soil test. And man, if I'm deficient, then maybe I need to do find some sort of a fertilizer, a material that, that can address those micronutrient needs. And I think that's that comes from, once again, that landowner being observant of what's going on, what they're seeing. And that can lead to really why the testing can really help. And sometimes, you know, maybe that uh, planting the diverse species of, uh, of crops, you know, we got to have different plants out there. Some plants are going to take up those micronutrients a little bit more readily than other plants. So we get that plant diversity. Uh, they get up loaded with uh, that mineral nutrition. That just is a way to get, get that uh, you know, micronutrient nutrition into those animals in maybe a more normal pathway than, than a supplemental uh, addition. You know, it's interesting to hear you say that about animals and their ability to really pick up on these differences in forage. We were just up at, at our land a couple of weekends ago doing some planting and my wife was walking around with our two sons and she kept saying, man, this one plant is just eaten to the ground. I mean, you know, we're out there in this lush vegetation, but she kept finding this the same plant and the deer were just browsing it very heavily. You could tell they were moving from spot to spot and getting all that plant. So there was something in that particular plant that was particularly palatable to them at that moment. Or it had what they needed. Yeah. Yeah. It had, yeah, it had what they needed or they liked the way it tastes or, or both. Hmm. And I thought, very boy, you know, it would be interesting to know what's in that, what's in that right now yeah. and find out what it is they're keying in on. And that's really making this attractive to them. It sounds like you could even do that to take it a step further from a soil analysis. You could do a forage analysis. You'd kind of mentioned that in the beginning of the show. Yeah, that, that is correct. Yeah. So we can do, do forage testing uh, to see, you know, what are the fiber contents of these materials? What are the mineral contents of the materials? So sometimes, you know, if you're, if that's something that guy would want to investigate, you could do one of two things. You could say, I want to be very species specific. And the example that you just laid out, Joe, like I've seen they're hitting on, you know, some sort of clover. So I'm going to go out and try to find all these clovers, cl uh, clip them off above the surface, you know, get about uh, a big handful of material and send that in for a forage analysis. See what the fiber contents, see what the protein content is, see what the mineral nu nutrition is going to be, and, and maybe that could be a lead-in of what why those animals are hitting that plant uh, specifically. 
The other choice would just be a general, like, Hey, what's, what's out there in that biomass. And then I just go take like a two foot by two foot square and you kind of clip all that material off and you put that in a, in a plastic bag and send that off. And then we can just say, well, Hey, in this area, you roughly have one and a half tons of biomass being produced. You've got this much protein out there per acre and this much micronutrients. So you can address these, these kind of plant testing or forage testing ways in, in a couple of different avenues. But I think uh, to your point on hitting specific plants, that really goes to more of a forage analysis, specifically focused on feeding. And that would be a, a more of a feed analysis that we do at the lab where we can test protein and fibers and see what might be making that uh, specific plant uh, really appetizing or, or appealing to, uh, to the animals out there. I really like that idea a lot. I have some soybeans in the ground right now and they look really good. And the deer, the Morganite's about to start wearing off and I can see they're starting to browse it some. And that really interests me as far as testing some of those soybeans. I would assume that you can kind of tell if you're getting the full effect of, you know, whatever that plant is supposed to be producing. Correct. Yeah. And so hmm, that's intriguing. Yeah. Often with these plants, you know, they're wanting stuff that's, uh, that's pretty young, that young growth is, yep. is that fiber content's just not that high yet in there. So it's, it's very easily digestible. They get all that nutrition out without that ruminant having to do a lot of extra work. So it's very interesting to, yeah, just in that general observation, nothing beats the boots on the ground idea in, the, in that, and people out there looking and seeing you know, we can provide good guidance from a laboratory perspective by getting samples, but never, never discount your observations when you're out there looking at the field yourself. Nick, I know it's going to be different for every landowner, the types of soils they've got, the region of the country they're in, how much management they've been doing up to this point. I mean, somebody that's been really working on their food plots for a long time, I'm sure they're going to have a little different results than somebody that hasn't and somebody that's engaged in lots of different management practices like prescribed fire. And there's going to be a lot of variables that could lead to soil analysis being very different, even in neighboring landowners, I'm sure. Definitely. But for the For the food plotter and getting back to those micronutrients, do you guys see that there's any particular micronutrient that is almost always deficient? you know, in, in soils, or is it really just kind of vary depending on where people are? It's really is variable based on where folks are at and kind of what the history has been. Uh, you know, if you're planting food plots into areas that are fairly native, you know, there've not been a lot of production ag ever in that area. Sometimes those micronutrients could be lacking a little bit just because they've never been addressed or, or never been applied. And the, the soil has not been ever amended with anything. So, and then also based a lot on the age of the soil. So, you know, as you move into areas that have warmer, warmer temperatures year round or more rainfall, you get more weathering on those soils. They tend to be more de uh, deficient, mainly P and K, but also those micronutrients also could be very deficient as well. Uh, versus, you know, guys that are to the north, uh, the soil doesn't weather as fast, deep black soil, those tend to have a little bit more of that nutrition still around. So it, it really varies based on kind of the climate that you find yourself in. So Nick, talking about climates, obviously rainfall is going to be different everywhere you go. Temperatures are different. Even soil is going to be different. I mean, I think about where my land is, mostly sandy loam type soils, good for growing trees, not so great for growing crops, but we make a few food plots here and there. And, you know, I, I had a soil test done last fall. And w one of the things on that soil test is it said that they did not test for nitrogen and, and said there was no meaningful test for nitrogen. So you mentioned that, that those tests are being done. Why did that soil test that I got not give me uh, any nitrogen recommendations or analysis? Yeah, that's another one of those things that uh, it all comes back to where we live in the world and, and that climate. So if we want to think about where you're from in the Southeast, 
Uh, we have a lot of rainfall. Nitrate that we test for in, in here in Nebraska is a, is a leachable nutrient. So when you get excess of rainfall and the plants not take it up, that nitrate is essentially washed out of that, that root zone. So it's not, not able to be taken up versus if you're, uh, if we got a listener that's uh, more the high plains or the mountain west where we get, you know, maybe 25 inches of rainfall a year, you can get this buildup of nitrate that is able to be used for plant uptake. And we don't have that excess rainfall to wash it away where we have a heavier soil that might not allow, allow for as much deep percolation. So we were retaining that nitrate in the, in the root zone longer. So that would be why sometimes you see a nitrate value or you wouldn't see a nitrate value. And that's kind of based on that geography, that, that climate that, that the lab is in and, and that people that they work with most commonly. So if I get that analysis done through you guys and it comes back and it, it gives me my available nitrogen and I talk to you guys and I get those recommendations on how to amend that deficiency if there is one, is that some of the, the things that would go into your recommendations is you'd say, well, you know, Joe, you've got some available nitrogen, but you're in the coastal plain of Alabama. So it's probably going to be leached out by the time you plant your your fall planting, I would, I would apply X number of pounds per acre of nitrogen. You'll look into that kind of stuff. Uh, we, we do have some modifications. So the one thing too, to think about that, if you've got a, a growing crop before you take the soil sample, generally the, the soil nitrate should be pretty low in, in regardless. The only time you get builds up in nitrate is if we have a, a really long dry spell or we've tilled the ground and we haven't had something growing for three or four weeks. We, that's when we start to build it up. So it generally shouldn't be there. Uh, the other factor we do at the lab is we kind of give a, the, the soils a once over and we look for soils that, that appear to be sandier. And then we modify our recommendations to say, hey, this is a sandier soil. Uh, there's going to be a, a little bit more potential for either loss or not as much nitrogen re uh, retainage. Uh, so we will uh, modify the nitrogen and the sulfur recommendation to provide a little bit, little bit higher uh, applications to, to uh make up for that sandy soil aspect, if you will. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And the soil's getting a lot of weather this week because yeah. <laughs> it's about a hundred plus degrees just about yeah. everywhere in the South. And, you know, and this time of year, you never know when you're going to get five inches of rain in an afternoon. And that can have a big impact on, on your soil, depending on how you're addressing planting, you know, for guys that are doing uh, tillage versus no-till and for guys that are planting spring and in the fall versus just in the fall. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. And I really like what you said about number one, be aware of your surroundings when you're out yeah. there and look for these signs that maybe your forage isn't producing what it should or could and uh, or that it's not as palatable to wildlife. And And then once you key in on that, being able to pick the type of analysis you may need to figure out what your problem is, uh, but also just getting set up on a regular basis of, of testing. And, and I tell you, one of the key things I've been doing wrong over the years is that taking tests at different times of the year, you know, cause I yeah, just tend definitely. to do it when I think about it or when I'm there, uh, maybe it's in the spring one year and in the fall, the next year. And I like what you said about really being able to compare those results fall to fall or spring to spring, all good information, uh, that I think is going to help people key in on if they've got a problem and how to correct it. But if folks do want to get in touch with you guys, ask some more questions, go and look at some of those resources like you were talking about of what kind of recommendations somebody would need. Maybe they've already got their soil analysis done and they want to reach out to you mm -hmm. guys and, and see it, what they should do. What's the best way to get in touch with you guys um, after the podcast? Yeah, I think the, the easiest thing is probably just hit up our website, 
wardlab.com. You can browse all the different resource information we've got on there. We've got resource tabs. Uh, there's a contact us button on there uh, where you can send send an email specifically to me or someone else at the lab. Uh, there's a phone, phone numbers listed on there. You can reach out and call. But yeah, the, the, the website is very comprehensive, lots of information. Uh, and we're always up for answering questions. Uh, so if you get if you're able to fire off a quick email, we got myself and there's there's at least three or four other guys that, that will look at look at uh, those messages and have that background to be able to help help make a response and uh, and get some guidance to that landowner on, on what to do next. Very great information today, man. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Hey, Butch, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Butch, I'm I'm not a farmer. The fact. I'm not an agronomist. That's also I, a fact. But I do want to leave my land better than I found it. I really do. I mean, that's that's one of the things we talk about as a family when we go is we're going to go up here. We're going to be safe. We're going to have fun. We're going to do something to leave this place better than it was when we got here. Yeah, and that's the goal. And that, that applies to the soil. It applies to the forage. Wildlife. And, and wildlife improving it, you know? I mean, leaving it better than you found it. And I think how can you make those kind of decisions on what to do if you don't have some data to order your steps. What what did you take away from what Nick shared today? Yeah, I learned a ton from Nick, man. And and I'm kind of in the same boat, you know, I go up there and I can ride a tractor and I can do the math on how much to plant and when to plant it and all that stuff. But I'm also not a farmer, but I definitely learned a lot. One thing that I picked up or that stuck out to me, two things was one, as he said, don't ever discount what you see, you know, pay attention. Right. We talk about that on the fishing reports all the time. Pay attention to what you're doing while you're doing it. If you see that your salt licks are getting hammered, that's probably indicative of whatever you have in the ground at that, yeah, that particular your, your time. Yeah, your mineral sites or, yeah. Your deer aren't getting what they need from your regular forage. So that's that's cool. And also, I thought it was really cool that you can analyze your forage. That seems very beneficial to me as well. If you have a soil analysis, you can figure out what's down there. Okay, I need this to grow this plant. And then you can test the plant to see if it does have everything that the deer need in it and everything that that seed promises. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I, I you know, back to what you were saying about paying attention is it's maybe not just minerals. You know, you, you know, I was talking about that one particular plant that those deer were yeah. browsing heavily, but uh, it could just be that you see that the deer are browsing heavily. There's a lot of browse pressure. And what does that tell me as somebody that can plant a food plot and can do prescribed fire uh, and do things to create forage for wildlife. If I see that I've got a browse pressure issue, that means I'm not producing enough right. forage, just not producing yeah. enough tonnage. You need more acreage, right? Just yeah, or food. just more to, more more tonnage. You know, I yeah. mean, one or the other or both. And going back to the forage analysis, that's really interesting to me because most people, myself included, they've got a budget for what they can spend on their hunting property. Uh, owned or leased. And when I think about for any given dollar, I can walk out into a, a pine stand that's maybe had a prescribed fire run through it. And, you know, it's a year past that. And I can do a forage analysis, of everything that's growing uh, where I ran that fire through. And then I can also do a forage analysis of a fall food plot or a spring food plot and determine really which one is producing more bang for the buck. Because if you think about, you know, maybe to to run a prescribed fire might be $20 an acre to plant a food plot could be anywhere from 300 to $500 an acre, depending this year, who knows what the way fertilizer and herbicide prices are. So 
you start looking at it that way and you're going, okay, if, if it takes me $400 to plant my acre of food plot, and $20 to burn my acre of prescribed fire. Well, I can burn 20 acres for the same cost as planting one acre of food plots. Which one is going to produce more biomass for the well, deer? And talk about, incre- talk about increasing habitat. your tonnage. I mean, you have way more pond stands than you do food plot clearings right so talk about increasing your tonnage prescribed fire is going to be the way to go so yeah that's that's interesting points you brought up there you would think it would be but this gives you the the data to yeah, be able to know. make that decision and uh, and then yeah i mean that's just to plant the food plot if you're talking about uh, i mean i'm going through this right now we're talking about increasing our food plot acreage go out and price what it costs to de-stump a oh yeah a, a push back plot area you want to get it right. tillable you're talking about gosh you know, maybe $3,000 an acre yeah, thousands or so. for sure. Yeah. So it's, it's all adds up and being able to make decisions is the best for your property and best for your wildlife. This is a key fundamental thing that you need to do. And it sounds like the folks over at war labs got it, got it figured out and really can give you recommendations. That's where I always hit the stumbling block. I'm, we were sitting here, uh, staring at a, at a soil test that I had done on my place and it, it it kind of looks like Greek to me. So being able to have somebody guide me on what changes I need to make is invaluable. Appreciate you joining us. We want to make it easy for you to listen. So here's a handy option for you to get the podcast emailed to you each week. Just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. Again, just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. You'll join our email list. And wherever you are listening to podcasts, go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review. Send us a written review. We'd love to hear from you. If you got a show topic that you are interested in and like to see us cover, just email us at pros at landhunting.com. That's going to do it for us. Y'all stay safe out there. We'll talk to you next time. This week's Hunt Land Show is brought to you by Alabama Farmers Co-op. Alabama Farmers Cooperative has been serving gardeners, farmers, and everyone in between for 85 years. Visit www.alafarm.com for more information and to find a co-op near you. And also brought to you by Photonis Defense. The Photonis Defense PD Pro Ultralight Ultra Compact Night Vision System. Simply the best in-class night vision systems ever built. Contact photonisdefense.com to learn more. Photonis Defense, Masters of Darkness. And also by Voters List. Voters List is your new, reliable, and fast resource designed to link everyone to everything on the water. Locate anything from fuel docks, service repairs, or rentals of large yachts, all the way down to paddleboards, and all things in between. VotersList.com will always strive to make it better on the water. And also, Great Days Outdoors, the South's finest hunting and fishing magazine. Pick up your copy wherever magazines are sold or check them out at greatdaysoutdoors.com. And also brought to you by First South Farm Credit. First South can help you finance or refinance that perfect piece of land. To find out how First South can help you, visit their website at firstsouthland.com or call them at 800-955-1722. They are an equal housing lender.